Proverbs chapter 30, we didn't quite make it out of the uh, end of chapter 30 last time. We made it down as far as verse 28, uh, picking up in verse 29 this evening. We kind of, again, have kind of been having this unique section here in chapter 30 where the writer's uh, giving to us kind of some collective statements, some comparisons, uh, as he says here to us in verse <clears throat> 29, these, or there are, excuse me, three things which are majestic in pace, the idea is stately or showing authority and power in the way that they move. Yes, four, which are stately in their walk. A lion, he says, which is mighty among the beasts. And of course, we all know the lion is, right, the king of the jungle. And a lion is representation of great authority and power when he moves, certainly fierce in his dealings. And does not turn away from any, again, great strength and courage in the lion. Uh, the greyhound, of course, which is an animal that moves with great swiftness in its pace. Uh, a male goat, which is known for its stubborn persistence, uh, willing to buck and to not back down, but to press forward. And then a king, he says, verse 31, who... Uh, troops are with him. So uh, all four of these are basically just word pictures that really just speak of sort of, we might say, courageous and bold and strong leadership, whether it's the stately and the strong and ferocious lion who doesn't turn away or back down from any, uh, whether it is the swiftness of the greyhound or the stubbornness of the male goat, or what a beautiful picture as well, verse 31, of a king whose troops are loyally standing behind him, a king moving forward with a loyal group of troops standing in support of him, following him into the battle. And he says there's great confidence to a king uh, to be able to move forward if he has that type of a loyal support system with the troops rallying behind him. Verse 32, he says, if you have been foolish in exalting yourself, now I know none of us have ever made that mistake before, right? No one's ever exalted themselves, but he says, if by chance, if it's ever happened in your life or if it ever does, if you've ever been foolish in exalting yourself or if you have devised evil, another form of foolish behavior, put your hand on your mouth. Verse 33, for as the churning of milk produces butter and as the wringing of the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. So he describes here two different ways at times that people can behave very foolishly. The first he describes in verse 32 there is the foolishness of exalting, or we might say promoting ourselves. the error of self-promotion. And he says, whenever we recognize that we have in some way behaved in a manner or we've spoken perhaps in a way, or just, you know, the ulterior motive in our heart, the carnal desire to want to push ourselves forward or promote ourselves to get recognized or have us be the center of attention or maybe get the opportunity before someone else does. He says, look, whenever you recognize the foolishness of exalting yourself or entering into self-promotion, he says, own that error. When you recognize you've done it, acknowledge that was incredibly foolish, 
I'm being very carnal right now, and it was foolish to do that. And notice he says that if you've done that, the best thing to do, verse 32, he says, is to put your hand on your own mouth. The idea is like in shock and to just as quickly as you can put your hand over your mouth. And the idea is if you've been exalting yourself with your own words, right, bragging about yourself, kind of self-promotion, the way you're talking maybe or, or the way you've been speaking or he says, if you catch yourself doing that, put your hand on your mouth real quick. The idea is stop yourself. It's almost like the, the proverb is saying, shut your own mouth <laughs> as quick as you can. Put your hand over your mouth. Stop that. Stop talking. Stop promoting yourself. That is not good, and it's never healthy. It's always a very foolish thing to do. And the other thing he says, if we ever catch ourselves doing foolishly, he says, verse 32, is if we've ever devised evil. That is when we realize we have devised in some way some evil thing. We've uh, you know, engaged in something where we're kind of promoting an evil cause and we're trying to bring something to pass that we know is wrong in our conscience, but yet we've tried to make it come to pass, but we're feeling the guilt because we know what we're doing is wrong. God says to us, don't be foolish and dismiss that. Don't, don't transgress your conscience and don't ignore the fact if you know you've been convicted by God inside of your heart that what you're doing is evil. He says, don't dismiss it, own it. And again, the idea is put your hand over your mouth. Oh my goodness, Lord, stop me before I go any further. And, and the idea is that we, again, when we put our hand over our mouth, sometimes that's an expression of like being shocked, right? Kind of being like embarrassed, like, oh my goodness, I wish I, I, wish I didn't say that. Or, and that's the idea there, that we should never lose a sense of, of shock and we might say, you know, chagrin and shame and embarrassment when we do wrong things. And I think there's real wisdom in that because unfortunately what can tend to happen as we walk with God longer and we get to understand beautiful realities of grace and mercy. And look, I'm all about the grace of God. I'm not about legalism and rules and rituals and religion. I'm all about the wonderful reality that by grace, through faith alone, through Christ alone, we're saved. And we have a righteous standing before God because of our belief and trust in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate this coming weekend, right? We celebrate that very reality that though we are sinful and wretched and depraved and every one of us has all fallen short of the standard of perfection and don't deserve to enter into heaven, that thanks be to God that Jesus came, our Lord, and he lived in a body of flesh as a man, and he lived out the sinless, perfect life that I could never live, that you and I will never live. And then he died sacrificially on the cross, taking all the punishment for our sins, taking all of the wrath of God upon himself, dying sacrificially, and took that punishment and absorbed it so that we don't have to be punished. And then he overcame the power of death three days later and defeated the greatest enemy in all of our lives, which is the death process. And now Jesus is alive and that whoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And, and, and by grace alone, through faith alone, it, this, the Bible tells us that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. It's a free gift we humbly receive by believing it and just receiving it for ourselves and that we get this beautiful standing as Romans 3 describes to us where we stand in the righteousness of God. We receive his righteousness, which means I don't got to produce my own righteousness to be acceptable to God through my actions and performance and behavior. 
that by God's free grace gift, I have a righteous standing before God. And that's wonderful. And to be able to rejoice in that so that when I fail, I don't have to condemn myself for the next seven days and live in self-pity. Lord, I failed just like you told me I would. <laughs> and thank you so much that what Jesus did is sufficient and that you're gracious and merciful. And, and it doesn't mean I've lost my salvation. It doesn't mean I've lost my standing. I can apologize and I know that it's forgiven and it's under the blood of Jesus. But the error that we make in foolishness sometimes is sometimes we lose touch with the reality that just because we have a standing in grace, that sometimes we make the mistake in foolishness where we start to get a little fast and loose with the grace of God. And sometimes we let the grace of God, as the Bible talks about in the New Testament, become a license for sin. And so then all of a sudden we continually participate in some habitual sinful behavior and we just always want to chalk it up to, well, grace, 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 grace. And, and, and the Bible says, look, it's foolish. If you find yourself devising evil, that he has consciously choosing to enter into evil, the, the proper response should be, oh my goodness, I'm so embarrassed that I did that, Lord. I'm so ashamed that... I'm still doing that, Lord, and that we never want to lose that shock, that sensitivity of the Holy Spirit convicting us when we do wrong. And here he says, whether we've promoted ourselves, which is a great affront to God, because only God deserves to be exalted and Jesus honored, or if we've devised evil, we should be shocked. And, and then he tells us in verse 33 that the forcing of wrath, just like twisting a nose and getting blood, the forcing of wrath produces strife. Notice there, the caution there is the error of forcing to get our own way in frustration and wrath. And sometimes that's what we do in frustration and in anger. Sometimes we will force the issue to get our own way because we're angry that things aren't going the way that we want them to be, or the situation is unfolding the way we plan. So in anger, we we force the situation. We strive to get to come to pass by forcing what we want. And he says, I'll tell you what that always produces, strife. It always just produces strife. Whenever we get pushy and manipulative and we start trying to get our way forcefully, it never is good for good relationship experience. It always leads to strife and to division and deterioration in relationships. Again, rather than forcing our way, we should be willing to forsake our way. That's Christian ethic, where we submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God, where we know how to say no to ourselves and let another have their way by yielding our will to them in a sacrificial spirit. So again, he, he cautions against the foolishness of forcing our way in matters. Chapter 31, he says, the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. Now, Notice as we come to chapter 31 now, we're told certainly that the human author here of chapter 31, the Bible says, is this man, King Lemuel. Now, we've seen a few different human authors that have been indicated as writers giving us the record of the book of Proverbs, this book of wisdom. Of course, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author, not only of all the Proverbs that we give us great wisdom, but of the entire word of God. But here, the human pen, if you would, that the Holy Spirit of God was using to record these particular words of wisdom, these Proverbs, we're told, actually came from this man, King Lemuel. Now, some commentators try and, you know, speculate and put together, you know, Lemuel means devoted to God and so forth, and they, they think perhaps this was a like a pet name that uh, Solomon's mother gave to him and that potentially this is King Solomon. 
that's possible. And if you want to believe that, you, you can. I mean, really, it's just speculation. We don't have any biblical credibility of that. The Bible just calls him King Lemuel. Uh, I think if God wanted us to know it was King Solomon, God could have just said King Solomon. <laughs> uh, but he didn't. He, and so whether it is Solomon or not, it was a king. And the king here is identified as Lemuel, and he says, I'm writing these things. He says, these are the words of King Lemuel. So he's recording chapter 31, the close of the book. He says, and these are things which, notice, his mother taught him. Now, now I like that there. Notice, his mother, this king, his mother is imparting wisdom to her son because she wants him to avoid error and to succeed. Not just because she's his son and she cares about her boy and like every mother, they want their son to do well and to excel and to avoid error and problems. Uh, but more than that, her son has come to the place of being a king on a throne. He's got a pretty prominent position. He has a position of great authority and great importance. And this king is recording for us, it says here, what his mother taught him. I have that underlined. Beautiful to see her influence to want to develop him as her son. And how wonderful it is, is it not? Again, she's offering wise counsel to him as his mother, using her greater life experience, using her observations. She's got an entire generation of observations and learning on him as her son. And now she's speaking to him the things that we get in this chapter to caution him as an older woman speaking to someone of the younger generation. She's giving to him advice and guidance as a mother. Of course, as a mother, we know that role. One of the benefits of, of the role of a mom, though our culture devalues it so much, unfortunately, is mothers have a concentrated amount of time with their children. And I'm not saying that fathers don't and that fathers shouldn't. I tried to be very engaged and very involved in my daughter's life as a father and took that very, very seriously. But what I cannot claim is that I had the same amount of concentrated time that my wife as a mother had with our three daughters as we were raising them. Mothers have an incredible amount of concentrated time with their children just by the dynamics of family typically. So a mother has a profound opportunity of influence in a child's life an incredible occasion to minister, to develop, to invest in them, to train them. And what an incredible thing here. I love this. This mother, she taught her son. And she taught him some really great things. He's passing on a great deal of what she taught him in this chapter here. Verse 2, these were her words. Again, he's recording mom's words. She said to him, what, my son, verse 2, and what, son of my womb, and what son of my vows? I like it. She says, you're not just the son of my womb who was created and delivered by me physically, but she calls him the son of my vows. Now, whether she's speaking of the vows of her commitment to her husband and out of that, they, in a legitimate, beautiful way, brought forth a son and a next generation, or maybe it's son of my vows in the sense that when you were given to me, I made a vow to God, kind of like Hannah. And remember in 1 Samuel where she made a vow to God this child has been given to me by the Lord. He's been lent by the Lord to me. He's just on loan, and he doesn't belong to me, remember? And that, that's a, a beautiful perspective, the idea of dedicating our child to the Lord and realizing they really don't ultimately belong to us. They're given to us as a stewardship. They're on loan. They really belong to the Lord. 
And we just have a stewardship as parents, as moms and dads. And perhaps she's referring to in that sense, look, you're the son of my vows. When you were given to me and I delivered you, I recognize you were given to me by God and, and I've made a vow to God to raise you in a certain way, to raise you in the ways of the Lord, to turn you over to Lord, much like little Samuel had that experience with his mother as she recognized that as well. And I have to wonder in verse two, as she starts saying, what my son, what son of my womb, what son of my vows, maybe it's kind of the picture there. Maybe the son at some point was starting to make some bad decisions and she's kind of saying, what are you doing, son? That sounds like something a mom would say, right? What, what are you doing, son? I taught you better than that. You know different than that. And so perhaps that's kind of where some of this stemmed from. Verse 3, we start to get some of her instruction that she gave to him. Here was mom's good, wise advice and counsel. She said, first of all, verse 3, do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys King. So again, she knows not just that he's her son and she wants him to be a good man. She recognizes, son, you have been appointed to a very significant role and responsibility. He's a king over a nation. He has great power and great influence. And so all the more she's concerned. And the first thing she does here, she cautions him there in verse three, as a king, as a man, not to give away his moral strength, she says, as a man, don't give away your moral strength as a man to a woman. The idea there is in such a way whereby you give away your strength foolishly and you become weakened as a man, or you become crippled as a man by what you gave away foolishly to a woman in your interactions. Now, I think that can happen really by compromise in certain different areas as men in relationship to women. I think one area that can come to pass where a man foolishly gives away his strength to a woman and then becomes weakened or crippled as a man certainly is in the area of failing sexually in a relationship with a woman. How many times we have watched good men, right, be brought down and be weakened or broken or crippled. In a sense, they give away their strength and the power and the authority and the influence and all the potential that was operating through that. They give that away by, in a sense, giving away that strength to a woman through sensual lust or entering into an inappropriate relationship. And in a sense, they defeat themselves to a great extent. And, and here she cautions him, listen, son, don't do that. Be wise. Don't enter into inappropriate sexual relationships where you give away the strength that God has given to you in your character and your life and all that God, don't give that away. Don't make that mistake. And I think another way that a man can errantly give away his strength unto a woman, just thinking biblically through the realities of it, where he becomes weakened and crippled as a man is not just failing sexually with a woman, but forsaking his leadership role as a man. And I have seen occasions where, sadly, sometimes men give away their strength to a woman by failing to lead properly as a man and by being too passive and by forsaking their role as a God-ordained leader in the marriage and in the home life and failing to step forward and to embrace their role, they gradually give away their strength to a woman who's their wife. 
and they gradually give away that strength that they are supposed to operate in as a leader, as a servant leader, certainly, but as a leader and exercising God's proper authority in the marriage because they forsake it and they give it away to their wife. They give it away to a woman. And that never results in anything good. It never is good for the marriage. It's never good for the man. I've seen too many husbands who basically are castrated, emasculated men because they gave away their strength in an unhealthy way. And so God cautions here through this mother. Interesting. Isn't it interesting for any who would find offense in that? This is a woman saying this. This is mama bear, right? This is a woman, this is a, an older woman saying, son, don't be foolish. I'm telling you as an older woman, don't give away your strength to a woman foolishly. Don't do it. It doesn't ultimately arrive in anything good. She says, verse 3, nor, she says, your ways to that which destroy kings. Now, maybe perhaps she's thinking of Deuteronomy 17 and the cautions there of not multiplying gold and silver in materialism or not multiplying wives in inappropriate sexual relationships or, again, you know, indulging in, in all the other numerous things beyond Deuteronomy 17 that were also cautioned regarding kings as well. And she's saying, look, be careful, stay off of those paths and engaging in ways that ruin kings, or we might say that destroy leaders, because that's what a king is. So she says, be careful, steer clear of those very evident things that have brought leaders down, those ways that bring down and destroy kings and leaders, be careful of that. And I believe she just goes on to mention a few of those things Beyond the one she says prior, certainly one of them is in verse 3, giving away our strength to a woman in a wrong way. But verse 4, he says, uh, she says, excuse me, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. Lest, notice here's the reason now, the reasoning, lest they drink, become drunk, intoxicated, and forget the law and then pervert the justice of all the afflicted. So she's reminding him again. Notice she doesn't say it's not for people, but she does very clearly have no problem saying, son, you're a king. You're a leader. More is expected of you. You're a king. You have a position of authority. You have a role of higher responsibility. You have an important assignment. God has given to you a leadership role. And so she says, kings, leaders should not be drinkers. She says, it's not for leaders. It's not for kings. If the common man wants to exercise his freedom, she's not addressing that. But she says, but you're a leader. You're a king. And because you have a great deal of influence upon others with your role of leadership, you should also, as you embrace that, also embrace the choice to abstain from exercising your liberty to drink alcohol. And she says, because that is crucial. You need as a king to do things like what? Think critically and to make good judgments and to be able to lead people and make wise decisions and guide affairs. Those leading and in places of authority are called upon at moments to give counsel and to make decisions. And what if the king is pickled out of his mind at his party and then all of a sudden they come into the king and he's completely intoxicated and they say, king, 
Here's the scenario. What do we do? Well, if his judgment is impaired, he's not going to be very helpful to provide good leadership. He's not going to give the best counsel. He may give horrible counsel or make a foolish decision. And the reality is, if you're a king, you're always on call. If you're a leader, you always need to be ready, right? So again, if somebody was a doctor, let's say, and they were a, a surgeon who was on call that had to at times you know, get paged or get called and go in and perform immediate emergency surgery, the night that they're on call, do you want them getting drunk? Of course not, right? What you do is too critical. You got to abstain. <laughs> we can't take a chance. You can't plan for when you may be needed to make a good judgment or a good decision. So here he says to the king, and I believe to just leaders generally, they don't have the right to run the risk of being unprepared by being impaired by alcohol. So therefore, if you want to lead, you got to choose to abstain. God's basically saying that would be the wise thing to do here. And if you would say, I don't want to abstain, then God would say, that's fine. But then please don't lead. Please don't lead then. Because as a leader, more will be required of you. And you have influence and you have responsibility. And so therefore, there's that need to take that into consideration. So she says, it's not for kings, son. It's not wise, she says, because what could happen is if, if you drink, you could forget the law. You don't make good decisions in accordance with the laws of God or the laws of good judgment and civil affairs, and you can pervert the justice of the afflicted. You, you can make bad decisions. Now, let me just say, if that is true in leadership civilly, how much more ought that to be true in my personal conviction of leaders spiritually? For those who want to lead within the body of Christ, those who want to provide leadership, I don't believe there is any right or freedom to indulge in alcohol. I, I just truly don't. Because again, I get calls, texts, people interact all throughout the week, the evenings, the and, and, and if somebody reaches out to me and they're having a major critical moment and they want some counsel and they call me at nine o'clock at night and I've thrown back seven cold brewskis, and I'm a little impaired, and I give them some really dumb counsel because they wanted it in the moment, am I really helping? Am I leading effectively? No, I'm doing a great disservice. So there's not the freedom to exercise that. You, you need to be ready to be able to give good, sound, clear-thinking judgment, and if you're going to be available to lead. So I don't believe it is the right of a spiritual leader, of a, of a pastor, of someone who wants to exercise that role to exercise that because you need to be available to give good judgment and minister at any moment to be able to make good decisions, particularly when we are wanting to lead. And again, I would encourage you, read Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, after Nadab and Abihu get drunk and they behave foolishly in the house of the Lord and God severely judges, right afterwards, God tells Aaron and all the priests, don't you dare touch alcohol because I don't want that happening again. We read in the New Testament when the Bible gives qualifications for elders, he does tell elders and overseers, what we refer to as pastors, elders, overseers, he, he tells them that they should not be given to wine, that, that, that it's a choice. Why I, I, I want to be given to wine. Okay, then just don't be a leader. That, that's fine. There, there is a biblical freedom, but God says more is expected. And so again, I think this is just very essential. We live in a culture where such things have become so familiar that people want to make exceptions, and it's, it's a great disservice when this is ignored and really foolish things become the outcome. Look what he says, verse 6. It's almost as if a, a tone of sarcasm here. She says to her son, listen, she says, it's not for you. 
Give strong drink to him who is perishing. The idea would be a person who's passing or dying. They're in severe pain. Or wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. So uh, the picture here is almost this kind of this sarcastic to show the strong contrast to show this is not for those alcohol, those operating in an important role, in a leadership role because of the level of responsibility. And understand in the ancient culture, they didn't have and they weren't using morphine for a perishing person as a form of compassion. So what they used was alcohol for its opiate effect, for its medicinal effect to basically subdue some of the misery, some of the suffering. And she says, that's where that might be, in a sense, used, but it's not something you should be utilizing in a recreational way as a king and having your judgment impaired as the result of it. Verse 8 then says, open your mouth for the speechless and in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. So here we find her basically encouraging her son. Again, he's a king, which means he has great influence. He has a voice. He has a powerful platform to bring help and to bring about change. And she's saying, son, don't ever forget that platform you have and some people out there, she's saying, and under your care and your leadership, they don't have a voice. In a sense, they have no opportunity to speak or to advocate for themselves. They can't speak on their behalf. So she says, if that's the case, you advocate for them. Use your position. Use your opportunity to be an advocate. Intervene for them verbally. She says, I like what, open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of those appointed to die. You know, I don't know how any one of us as a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, hopefully is according to the word of God, you know, a person who should, of course, be very pro-life in regards to preserving life and protecting life, that we can't read verse 8 and think about how at times we ought to open our mouth for the speechless, meaning the lives of those who are in the wombs of women who have not yet come into the outside world but are very alive and viable who don't have the freedom to speak on their behalf. They're in a speechless condition. And that we would be those who speak on behalf of them. That we would open our mouths to protect the cause of their life. Interesting, in the cause of all who are appointed to die, to advocate, please don't do that to that child. Please don't end the life of that child. And again, that we would be those who would advocate and speak up and intervene and speak about the value of life to communicate those things. And of course, whether it's in that situation or in any vulnerable situation, she, he speaks of here even pleading the cause of the poor and the needy. The idea is just, again, people who are in a vulnerable condition, they're in a spot where they need someone to advocate for them, to defend their cause, that we would be willing to speak up on their behalf. And look, I, I tell you, one of the areas where I think this is very applicable as well, and we should take it as an exhortation to our hearts to open our mouth, he says twice, and speak up. I think an area where today in our generation, we need to, as Christians, be willing and boldness to open our mouth and speak up. One of the biggest areas I think right now is in the sexualization of our young children, because it is incredibly disgusting and perverse and sick and distorted how our current generation and certain a few whiny, sick voices are encouraging the perverse sexualization of our young children. And I'm thankful for those who are going to 
you know, you know, uh, school board meetings and city council meetings, and and there are, are choosing many of them, of course, parents because they realize that their five-year-old son can speak up and say, I, I would prefer not to have all that perversity and that sexualization shoved down my throat and stuck in my mind as a five-year-old. Could you just teach me the ABCs? And I think this is an area where, again, our culture is shifting in a very corrupt way. And it would be very wise for us to be those who have enough courage to stand up and to say, look, this is wrong. This is disgusting. It doesn't belong going on, and it's something that is completely usurping the role of parents and is really just polluting a generation just to accommodate a few people who want to feel better about their personal perverse choices. And I think we should really be those who are willing and wisdom to say, I'm willing to, to open my mouth to advocate, to speak up, and to speak in, a, in regards to such things. Now, verse 10, down through the remainder of the chapter, basically gives to us a section describing this virtuous wife. He says, who can find a virtuous wife? Now, let me just say on the front end of this, I don't think this is supplied to be a critique or, or something that we should use to critique or to criticize your own wife. So let me just put that out there as a disclaimer, okay? <laughs> you shouldn't read this and say, boy, I got some ammunition now as a husband. That's not what this is for, nor is it for wives, for those of you who are wives, to condemn yourselves. Oh, man, I am not that woman. I'll never be. It's not to condemn yourself, and it's not for us as husbands to critique uh, critique, excuse me, and, and criticize our wives. Likely, I think it's given, as think about it, we've, for those of you who've studied all the way through the book of Proverbs with us, as a contrast to numerous Proverbs we've seen earlier on that have described things like, remember, like the immoral woman, the adulteress, seductress. We've read about the contentious wife, remember, numerous times. And now God says, it doesn't have to be like that. There is a higher ideal. And this is the higher ideal to aspire towards. It may be more rare, but it's the ideal wife of great value and great benefit that we should certainly be searching for if you're a single person and you're young as a man, as well as if you're a wife, it's something you should be aspiring towards continually, or if someday you plan to be a wife, that you would seek to aspire towards the ideal that the Holy Spirit gives to us. So he says, verse 10, who can find a virtuous wife. The word virtuous just speaks of the wife or the woman of, of excellent moral character. That is such a woman who's just committed to living in a way that is just excellent morally. And he says, who can find such a person like this, a wife like this? Her worth is far above rubies. And the, the indication here in verse 10 is talking about how such a woman or such a wife of excellent moral character he says, who can find a wife like this? Now, he's not saying they don't exist. He's just saying they're rare, that these are more rare. Women who choose to aspire to this higher calling, to, to live in such a way, to honor God and to bless their husband and bless their families, he's saying they do exist, but you got to look for them. They're out there. If you're a single guy, you got to find them, though. And when you find one, capitalize on the deal. I did. When you find one, found one, and she's hot, ding, ding, winner, winner. Got both there. And he says, they're out there, but it's, sometimes it's tough to find. So you got to look a little bit. You got to search around. And he says, and if you find one 
Recognize her worth, her value is far above rubies. The idea is something that, again, like a precious gemstone, right? A ruby, very expensive, something of great value. Rubies were also more rare gems, and that's probably why this is given here in that picture, this gem of a ruby, because these are rare wives that should seek to be something we look for. If you're a single man, these are the things you should be looking for. Not just is she smoking hot. Nothing wrong with chemistry, guys. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But he's going to say at the end of the chapter, the smoking hot thing, when life starts to happen to both of you, not just her, that eventually fades. It, it can't last forever. The tent wears out. But the inner beauty is something that lasts and lingers, and that can even get more attractive. And that could be something that's way more admirable. So he's saying this is the type of lady that's rare. She's an ideal find, but she's a valuable gemstone. And he says, if you find a wife like that, man, you're a rich man. You may not have two pennies to rub together, but if you got yourself a virtuous wife, man, he says, you got a precious gemstone, and don't ever forget that. He then begins to describe her in verse 11. He says, the heart of her husband, this virtuous wife, safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. So this wife operates in such a way whereby her husband has no question, it says. He safely trusts her. Her husband has no concern or question about her devotion to him or her loyal support to him by the way that she orients her life. He has complete confidence in her, trusting in her. He doesn't feel as if it's risky or unsafe to trust his wife. He has complete confidence in her. It says her husband safely trusts in her, and as the result of the way that she operates, she does not do things that will, in a sense, hold him back. See what he says there? She, so he, that is the husband, will have no lack of gain. That is, she's not keeping her husband from gaining ground. The way that she orients her life, the way that she lives with him, the way that she functions, she's actually helping him gain ground. But she never operates in a way whereby because of her temperament or her behavior, what she does, where her husband starts to lose ground. He says her husband trusts her and he has no lack of gain with her involved in his life. She does him, verse 12, good and not evil all the days of her life. So the way this wife operates in their marriage brings him great blessing. She orients her life, the Bible says, in such a way toward him to serve and to help and to stand by him, that it brings good, beneficial things in his life. In the way that she functions with him relationally, she does him good, always bringing more good into his life, making his life better, enriching his life, making him a better man, complimenting him, like the Bible says, a husband and a wife are to do from the book of Genesis. She becomes that helper, that completer, where he becomes a better man as the result of having her being brought into his life. And in no way does she bring him evil. The idea is that she doesn't do things or she avoids doing things that would bring harm into his life. She's considerate of the reality that she doesn't want to bring problems through her sinful choices. Verse 13, he goes on to describe this wife saying she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. So she's an industrious woman. 
She's a hard worker. She's not just sitting around being lazy. Again, she's someone who's inclined to live in a productive way. She's operating in a manner where she's trying to be a productive person to bring blessing into the marriage and the home life. Verse 14, he says, she is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. So this pictures how this virtuous wife is like a merchant ship going out looking for opportunities for transactions, good business deals. So it pictures basically this wife as searching for for good deals, going around looking for bargains. She's like the merchant ships, going out, looking around, again, using good stewardship, bringing in food from afar. So she's going out, she's bargain shopping, she's taking the time to look for good deals, trying to make wise decisions and good stewardship. She handles her affairs with a degree of great stewardship. Verse 15, she also rises while it is yet night. The idea is before the sun comes up, she's up before the sun and provides food for her household, as well as, notice, not just making sure the family's fed, but a portion for her maidservants, that is, those who are going to be the the household servants. So the picture there in, in verse 15 is she does what's necessary to provide meals for not only the family, the immediate family, it says there that she's... Up before the sun rises, she's preparing, she's doing what it takes through securing the food and preparing the food and cooking the food and plating the food to to provide food for her household. So she's working in a manner whereby she's making sure the family is fed and even beyond that, prepping and cooking in a way where she's able to embrace the role as well of helping out even the feeding of the maidservants. So the picture here in verse 15 is that she's a wife that embraces her role of making sure that everyone in the family is fed, well-fed, nourished, taken care of. She takes pride in cooking her meals. She takes it as a serious role and an important thing and, and kind of takes pride in that, doesn't see it as, a, as something that she has to do, but it's something that she actually takes pride in. Providing those meals and feeding her family, and it's something that she finds a degree of fulfillment and purpose in. Verse 16, going on, says she considers a field. Notice considers, the idea there is she's she's strategic. She goes out, she considers a field. Hmm, Is that a good real estate transaction there? Should I buy that piece of land? Maybe I could plant a garden. We can get some crops. I can raise some more fruit and vegetables, save a trip to the grocery store do a little sweat equity. She goes out, she checks out a field, and then she buys it. And then from her profits, she plants a vineyard. So she looks for ways, this virtuous wife, to be strategic, you might say, to even help increase the family wealth. So she's a very strategic thinker. She's good with managing money, wise stewardship, even a little bit of business sense described there in verse 16. Verse 17, she girds herself with strength, and strengthens her arms. So I don't know, maybe even she's an exercising wife. I don't know. The picture there, verse 17, is that she girds herself with strength. I think the imagery there is it's describing how this virtuous wife, that she's a strong lady. That is, she's able to endure through trials and hardships, and she still remains strong in spirit without crumbling. And understand, especially in the ancient culture, if you, you know, think about it, life was a lot tougher than it was now. I mean, what it took to just accrue food and to make clothing. I mean, you, you just didn't run to the mall and buy your kids some new clothes. 
he's going to say later on, you know, the distaff and the spindle and yarn. I mean, this was a whole different world, what it took to do stuff. And it was a hard world. People got sick, and there were much greater difficulties, and it was, it was just a tough way of life. And the picture here is, is that she was just a woman of strong spirit. I lie, just a beautiful picture there. Feminine? Absolutely. But she was a woman of strong inward countenance, displayed stamina, staying power through the hardships. She kept marching onward. She had a strong inward spirit. He says, verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. So she's up before the sun and her lamp is the last one burning in the household. Nobody sees it go out because she's the last one to blow it out. She stretches out her hands. Here's those terms I mentioned. Stretches out her hands to the distaff, verse 19, and her hands to the spindle. So there the picture is of just describing how she is not a lazy woman. I mean, she is just a diligent, hardworking woman. She is not a woman who is, you know, she's not sitting around all day, uh, just indulging, I was going to say soap operas, but I'm dating myself. They even, they even exist anymore? I don't know. Uh, you know, eating bonbons or whatever, you know, I mean, she's just, whatever, not watching Netflix, you know, videos all day long. No, she's, she's busily occupied. She's industrious. She, she's making contribution to the household, working long hours here, pictured here, uh, up till late at night, faithfully contributing to the work and the needs of the household. Again, manually making clothing there. That's the picture there of putting her hands to the distaff and the spindle. She's literally making the clothes for the household. Verse 20 goes on to say she's not only industrious, but look, she's also very generous and giving. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. So not only does she take good care of her own family, She's also a, a lady who has a very generous spirit. She has compassion for the needy and the unfortunate. She takes into consideration those maybe who are in need or less fortunate, and she lovingly enjoys ministering and helping those who are in less fortunate conditions. She has a heart for outreach and those struggling, extending her hand, reaching out to the poor and the needy. Verse 21, and she's not afraid of snow, that is the winter cold months for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. So here, verse 21, pictures how she is a virtuous wife and that she exercises good foresight. She sees winter coming. She sees the cold months on the horizon. And rather than being negligent, she is a forward-thinking woman and she's a good planner. So seeing winters on the horizon, she gets to it, making it says... All her household, garments, clothing of scarlet. The Hebrew there literally kind of throws us off a little. The Hebrew literally refers to garments of double thickness. So what it's describing, obviously, is warm clothes, <laughs> is that she realizes winter's coming. And, and, and Johnny and, and Bobby and Sally, they're not going to be warm enough in those little you know, lightweight garments I made. I need to make some, some double thick garments. And so it says she's not afraid when winter comes. Why? Because she's a planner. And she prepares well, and she plans ahead. And again, this was another part of her, her virtuous character. She was very responsible. She thought ahead. She made good preparations, making sure her family was taken care of in all the different seasons of life. And she paid attention to that. Hey, this is a different season that's coming up now. I need to plan for this next season. I need to prepare a different season is coming. And again, this was a part of her virtuous, moral, excellent character that she did such things. 
Verse 22, it goes on to describe this wife saying that she makes tapestry for herself. And tapestry is a reference to either what we might think of as like bed coverings or curtains. So again, she's decorating the house. Praise the Lord. She doesn't need a decoration budget. She just makes the stuff. And so she's weaving her own blankets and making her own tapestry and hangings for the household. The second half of verse 21 says, and her clothing, notice now this is her clothing. Interesting, watch this. It says her clothing is fine linen and purple. So she's making clothing for the kids. She's making sure her husband's got a good warm garment when he goes out in the winter snow to go and hunt the buffalo to you know, bring the food home and so forth. But I like here, but her clothing that she made, she made of fine linen and purple. Now, here's what's interesting. We know culturally fine linen and purple, those were garments typically that you would see in royalty. So when she makes her own clothes, she makes clothes that allow her, in a sense, to look like a princess, which means that she's making an effort to make herself attractive. She could have just threw on the double wool garment like her kids, but she thought, no, I want to look pretty for my husband. So she, she, has, she cares about fashion. She has a sense of, I want to be well put together. I want to look pretty for my husband. I want to look attractive. And again, what a beautiful compliment here of this virtuous woman that she actually cared about her appearance, that she saw that as important. I want to look pretty for my husband. I want to be attractive and appealing to him. And she took that into consideration, being fashionable and dressing in a way that would be attractive. Her husband, verse 23, is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Of course, the gates was where decisions were made. The elders of the land were those who would collaborate about judicial decisions and if they were going to go to war and what their battle strategies were. And there's her husband out at the city gates. Why is he out at the city gates? I think the complimentary thing of the wife here is the idea is that the way that she operates with her husband is she empowers her husband to excel. The reason he's out at the city gates in a sense, is because he's got a good root system beneath the tree. And she's that good root system by the way that she operates, doing him good and not evil all the days of his life, being trustworthy and helpful, and, and just this wonderful woman of excellent character, whereby the ways that she operates, verse 23 describes, because of her support and assistance, her husband is flourishing as a man. He's out at the city gates. He's been promoted to hanging out with the elders. Because his wife is this wonderful support system, this healthy root system beneath the tree. As this virtuous wife, she enables her husband to thrive. She helps her husband to be able to excel. She contributes to his success as a good support system. What a beautiful thing to see. Verse 24, she makes also linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. So she didn't just make clothing for her own family. She's got a little side hustle here. <laughs> She's also making some extra clothes, and then she's selling them down at the marketplace, doing a little supplemental income for the family. She's got her own little side hustle sewing job here. Verse 25, strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. Now, notice, this is the real key, as the chapter concludes, to why she's such a morally excellent woman. Because notice, he says, strength and honor are her clothing. Now, above it said that she wore linen and purple. So outwardly, she dressed attractively and fashionable, but the Bible calls attention to the real beauty of her life is that she's a strong, godly, honorable woman. 
And that's what she clothed herself more than anything with, that she cared not so much about the outward appearance foremost, but the inner beautiful spirit of being a strong, honorable woman. And this is what he's describing. This is what made her so virtuous, that she was an honorable, godly woman. That was what her greatest representation of herself was about. Look at verse 26. It describes her. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. I love that description of this virtuous wife, this excellent woman, this wonderful wife. She opens her mouth with wisdom. She is a wellspring of wise advice. She's able and often does share wise counsel with those that she speaks to, whether it's giving wise counsel to her husband to help him make decisions in life and navigate things, being his greatest counselor, whether it's people seeking counsel from her, her children, other women around her, younger ladies. Titus 2 says older women should be teaching younger women. And it doesn't say in Titus 2, older women should teach younger women how to be real successful in the corporate world. It says older women should be teaching younger younger women how to love their husbands and love their children and manage the home. The idea is to put their foremost priority on their family. Their family. And I love this picture here. This is a woman who's being praised because she opens her mouth and she just speaks wisdom. And how wonderful to have women in the body of Christ where younger women and others can go. And when they open their mouths, they're not saying foolish things. They're not talking about dumb stuff, but they're offering incredible wisdom and giving advice and counsel. And how wonderful to have a godly woman like that than when they open their mouth, just it's like a wellspring of wisdom. And people know I can go to her and man, the wisdom is going to come forth. I can seek wisdom and counsel. And not only is she giving lots of great advice, but notice her spirit and disposition is kind and not condemning. He says there in verse 26, on her tongue is the law of kindness. So the idea is that she's a very caring, tender-hearted lady. She's giving wisdom, but she's not just saying the right things. She's very caring in her spirit. When she interacts with people, that's reflected. And her speech is governed by affection and encouraging words, kind speech, building people up always bringing an encouraging, supportive word. She watches over the ways of her household. Again, we take notice. She took very serious the management of the domestic life. She found that was very important. She watched over the ways of her household. She was a good steward with her family life. She doesn't eat the bread of idleness. She's industrious and productive. Verse 28, now here's what happens when a woman lives in such a way. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. So notice, she doesn't have to self-promote because the Bible says when a woman lives in that excellent way as an excellent wife, an excellent mother, what happens is her children and her husband can't help but to brag about her. And the children become her greatest testimony saying, man, my mom so great and so and and they just praise their mother my mom she's such a great wife and I learned so much watching how to be a good wife by my mom and I look at my what a godly woman and and her children just speak very highly of her and they're complimenting and praising her for who she is as well as the husband 
able to speak in a way where he's not complaining about his wife. Oh, she's the contentious woman. Man, she's the dripping faucet. But instead, he's always bragging on his wife and talking about how great she is and publicly complimenting her and singing her praises in front of others and speaking of what a great woman she is, what a great wife she is, what a wonderful mother she is. And again, that verbal praise coming from those who she's influencing so greatly. He says, verse 29, many daughters have done well. Many women are excellent wives and women, he says, but you excel them all. You've excelled. And then verse 30, he concludes, charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praise. So again, notice, charm is deceitful. And again, we know what charm is. Charm is basically that power of arousing and persuading another person. And notice the Bible says charm can be very deceitful because sometimes that power of persuasion is manipulating people. And it's not true of someone's genuine character. And so he says charm can be very deceitful. You can't go just off of, she's such a charming lady. And then he says, secondly, beauty is passing. The idea is physical beauty, physical attractiveness, that thing that typically, let's be candid, that typically is the highest criteria that draws a man to a woman because men are very visually oriented. So typically most men are initially or instantaneously drawn and attracted because of physical beauty to a woman. And God says both to the man to pay attention as well as to the lady as well who may feel that pressure of, oh, I've got to look so pretty. I've got to look so hot. I've got to be sexy. I've got to be, and, and, and that's so ingrained in what the culture is doing. In our, and, and God says, look, here's the thing to remember. There's nothing wrong with physical beauty. But God says, it don't last forever. Because <laughs> as time goes on and life wears on, whether you are a man who's attractive or you're a woman who's attractive, eventually things start sagging, leaking, falling apart, wrinkling, deteriorating. Do we need any more adjectives? <laughs> it just happens. And so God says here, as a reminder, physical attractiveness is a fading thing in all human lives as we age and deteriorate. And it's not wrong. It's just not the thing that endures. So God says, don't put the highest criteria on that. Nothing wrong with physical beauty. But God says the higher priority should be the inward beauty. He says a woman that fears the Lord, that is a woman who loves God, who walks reverently with God, who loves Jesus, who obeys the word of God, who has a reverence for the Lord and therefore in her reverence for the Lord, she lives in a way where she has a morally excellent character. God says that, that'll be beauty till her dying breath. That will be something that you'll keep saying. Man, you just keep getting more and more and more beautiful. And all the other stuff that seemed to matter in the earlier years, it doesn't really matter as much anymore. And it's how beautiful to me that God will conclude chapter 31 by saying, give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her. Notice, such an excellent wife, God says, we should never forget this, folks, is worthy of receiving reward, God says. Worthy of receiving reward. She deserves verbal praise before others. That is an excellent wife. That is an excellent woman. That is an excellent mom. And also, give her the fruit of her hands. Let me give you an encouragement, guys, if you're husbands. That speaks of material blessing. 
perhaps sometimes we need to learn to reward our wives with just not just verbal compliments, but saying, you know what? You need a little material reward. I need to reward you for such an excellent woman that you are and to be willing to bless her and do things we can to kindly show her our deep appreciation for her. Let's stand. Let's pray together.